We're going to do it together. We're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, watch my fingers. Ready? Tom. Oh, sorry. This is it. The US is back in the Paris Agreement, Universal Agreement, all nations in the world. Here we go. The US is back. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm happy Christiana Figueres. I'm a joyous Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the re-entry of the US into the Paris Agreement. We talk about many issues that Paul Dickinson has researched ad infinitum. At length. We at speak length. to the brilliant Kim Stanley Robinson, author of the recent book, Ministry for the Future. And we have music from French duo Toucan Toucan. Thanks for being here. Guys, this is such an exciting week. I mean, I have to say, you guys are going to have to carry it. I don't know if you know this, but in the UK, it's half term. Now, you have to squint to see the difference these days between homeschooling and half term. But that means that I have, I'm getting even less done than usual. I've got my kids around. We're running around. We're going to the beach. So what's happening? Is anything big going on in the world at the moment? Well, actually, half term means that you are on vacation. That's what it means, that you can go and frolic outside. Just so that's that what you know. it means. No homeschooling for you. So... Oh, my God, tomorrow, the United States formally rejoins the Paris Agreement. Hallelujah. Now, what are they calling the campaign, Tom? Isn't it, doesn't it have a particular name? Yes, that's right. America's All In, which is perfect. Oh, my God. You say, Paul? Oh, my I mean, God. It's just such a- oh, oh, my dear. God. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 Problematic. No. Um, I mean, Christiana, honestly, would you like to explain what, what is the yeah, problem with that? Yes, yes. I shall like to explain what the problem is with that. There are many of us who live on the continent of America that extends all the way from Alaska to Chile and Argentina. And therefore, that is a whole continent. In fact, some would argue it's two continents or three continents, but it is certainly not one country. So one day when the United States grows up, it will realize that it is the United States of America, not America. We're approaching 10 years now in which Christiana's been trying to get me to remember the difference. I remember first we're walking into my office in the UN and maps had been pinned up with clear instructions to learn the difference between the Americas and America. But I don't know. I mean, I appreciate your one-woman crusade. I know it's not a one-woman crusade because it's a hot-button issue. It is not a one-woman. No, everyone who lives on this continent south (laughs) of the northern Mexican border is very much... Knowledgeable so about this. It's trouble. just, you know, a lobotomy happens when you cross the border okay. from Mexico into the US. I am also in on this too. Clay. I'm, I'm also now part of this. Thank you, Clay. You're uh, part of this on which side, Clay? Uh, on your side. Uh, Thank the right you. side. This is a fascinating conversation. It is possible that we're not talking about the key issue, which is that the US has rejoined the Paris Agreement. Very but important. But also the other key issue is what's the possible third continent in the Americas, Cristiano? Well, there is North America, there's South America, and those of us who live in the tiny little sliver in between, Central America, there you are. What, you think you're your own continent? That's even worse than the United States in north of you. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Right. Can we please get back to the Good, good use of United Statesian, though, though. I liked it. Right. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, right? We've talked about the fact that the US was the only country to pull out. We were terrified others were going to do it. It didn't happen. Everyone else stayed in. 
re-election of Biden, US back in, nationally determined contribution coming between now and the big summit on April 22nd when all heads of state are going to go to Washington and convene with Biden. So exciting for this year and amazing. I mean, this is really the starting gun in a way for the US re-entry into international negotiations. Obviously, it's going to be night and day, different teams negotiating. John Kerry, as we've talked about, as the chief diplomat focusing on this issue. Very exciting for our friends in the UNFCCC, very exciting for the road to Glasgow, and lots more to come. But it's not a re-election of Biden, it's an election of Biden. Oh yeah, that's true, yeah. That's a premonition for the fact that he will be re-elected. Okay, right. all right, <laughs> good. <laughs> now, I'm afraid, listener, that because I've I've been on holiday this week, we're sort of in Paul Dickinson's hands. Yes, yeah, so I've yeah. been carefully preparing because <laughs> I've received fantastic notes on key issues one of them this week, did you know that the distinguished economist Joseph Stiglitz and uh, Lord Nicholas Stern have recommended that the social cost of carbon is wrong? It's currently, well, did you know that under the Trump administration, it was $8, which uh, uh, those distinguished economists, uh, Stiglitz said, they just made that up. Uh, under Obama, it was $60 a tonne, but they think it should be $100 a tonne. Now, do you know what the social cost of carbon really means? Do explain. The amount of damage caused by emitting one tonne of carbon. Is that about it? How much risk you want to uh, expose your children Endure. to? Mm. Well, no, I mean, is you know, if you if you really don't care about them at all, then you, know, you might say, well, I, my children can be exposed to any amount of risk. You'll say, I'll make up a figure of eight dollars a ton, and uh, my children will have to face the consequences, and their children, and I don't really care. Or if you were extremely worried about your children um, and their children having trouble with climate change, you might say a thousand dollars a ton, and there's everything in between. But Stern and Stiglitz have come up with a distinguished, thoughtful report saying a hundred dollars a ton. Now, consider this for a minute. If we have $100 a ton greenhouse gas emissions, that will cause massive changes in our economy, lots of jobs, lots of new industries. Very exciting. So well done, those two, for rescuing the economics profession from its possibly dismal fate as analysts rather than activists. And $100 a ton, I mean, not wanting to like crack open the lid too far on what I'm sure is encyclopedic economic knowledge that you're holding here, Paul. Is that to do with the discount rate that's been applied or why did they come up with that? Oh, discount rate, interesting. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, discount rates themselves are very complicated. This is the idea that money now is worth more to you than money in the future, right. which makes absolutely no sense if you believe there is the future and it matters. Um, so exposing yourself to huge risk later because you think some kind of magic machine is going to come along that you can fix the problem with is ridiculous. So discount rights are very, very dangerous. I think it's much more about how quickly you want to change things. Let's just consider a flight from, for example, London to New York. Uh, you know, the, the currently there's essentially no cost whatsoever for the carbon. If the carbon cost you, I don't know, $10 a ton, that would be $40 on the price of the ticket. If it was $100 a ton, that would probably be $400 on the price of the ticket. You see the difference? I see. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. What else has been happening this week? Mm, well, one of our listeners, Peter Hope, has asked about the growing uh, greenhouse gas emissions from uh, Bitcoin and blockchain mm. and uh, asked if we could get somebody on the program to talk about it. Um, I was, I thought I knew something about that, but I'm doing a bit more research. It is a real problem. <laughs> and one of the things is that because this isn't really governed, there's not actually anybody who can really do anything about it. It's quite interesting to think that there's something in the world that's evolving, unregulated, and can't really very easily be stopped. It is It is fascinating. I mean, and there's all these incredible um, sort of stories around it, right? That all these Bitcoin mines are being sort of positioned near to hydroelectric plants and things to get cheap electricity because the amount of power that's consumed is just unbelievable, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very long story. And, you know, even though I understand it, I don't quite understand it. Bitcoin is so weird, by the way. I'll tell you my theory about it in just a second. But, you know, essentially the the process of um, administering the, the Bitcoin system uh, does have growing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and the price of Bitcoin decides how much uh, people are willing to spend on the energy uh, to continue to process the Bitcoin system. Because they're now so expensive that actually it's worth spending the money on the computing power and the energy associated with it too. I'm afraid so. And this is beyond any government to regulate. So shall I tell you my theory? And this yes, will be my please. last theory for the week and then I'll, I'll, I'll release you. Um, <laughs> no one knows who invented Bitcoin. And it's like the internet. Well, it's a bit like, well, no, I know where the internet comes from. It's an American nuclear defense system. Um, but it's the, a what? It's a what? Yeah, what, what did, did you, you just say? You know? <laughs> See? Well, I, the internet was designed to uh, uh, to operate uh, nuclear weapons even when half of it was blown up. It works even if you blow up half oh, of it. It the was the geography. Which it was the geography that I was from? taking yeah, exception from where? To. I beg your pardon? Where was this? Uh, across the United States. Uh, the, it was a very okay, unpleasant Carry on. Now, now, because we don't know where... Uh, Bitcoin and blockchain comes from, and because we don't really know where QAnon comes from, I want to prepare our listeners for the idea that the internet may have become conscious and is beginning to play with us. Uh, I think Bitcoin and QAnon might conceivably be the overmind, the vast electronic system that uh, is the the all the computers connected together, beginning to experiment with humans. Now, I'm probably wrong, but it's not a bad idea just to think about it, just in case. You know, I don't think that we're going to get uh, in the future when the robots take over. I don't think they're going to come for us with guns. I think they're going to meddle with us through Bitcoin and QAnon and whatever's next. So keep an eye out for some kind of overarching machine intelligence to start to emerge <laughs> in our lives. By the way, and also, if I get, having said this, because obviously they'll be listening to me, um, if, I, if, I, if I'm hit by an autonomous car or in a suspicious plane crash, uh, you know, be be assured that I'm onto something. Okay, that's so, end of speech. So that's basically like an ur conspiracy theory. It's like the mother of conspiracy theories. And I think what the last few years have shown us is it's entirely responsible to just come up with conspiracy theories and put them out there on the internet, and nothing bad happens. So, so good on you for adding another one. <laughs> Fair enough, Tom. I am chided and chastised. <laughs> Christiana has shown her succinctness. Tom has shown uh, the irresponsibility of my ranting. Uh, I, I feel um, contained, which is really the kind of therapy that I look for on outrage and optimism. Thank you both. You're welcome both. So um, I also wanted to share something that we got uh, feedback from the Sargassum podcast. Hello to a fellow podcast. Uh, and uh, I am so delighted to hear of yet another lover of oceans and ocean solutions. Actually, I must admit, quite a new love for me. But after Coco's Island, who wouldn't fall in love with the oceans? So the request is to talk more about the oceans and how they help us with climate change. Um, and a very interesting point said there, what do we do? You know, I keep on uh, talking about these wonderful places in Costa Rica, some of them on land, some of them away from land, quite a bit away from land. And what do we do about our CO2 emissions from traveling there? So you will be happy to know that the CO2 emissions were um, offset tenfold for the trip that we took. And, um, and we have now uh, had the company that has these boats that go to the Cocos Islands commit to always doing that and including it in the price of the trip. So that is a good thing. Um, but honestly... It is not even about the CO2 emissions. It is absolutely about that amazing marine fauna. And uh, Sharon 
our producer has promised that we're going to have some kind of a video cast or something with some of the 10 million photographs that we brought back from the trip if I ever get to go through them and send her my favorites. Mm. Mm. And now I, I can just make a prediction that we're going to get a bit of mail about the idea that you just need to offset stuff and then you can fly around the world, which I know is not what you're saying there. So, But I wonder whether we should dig into that issue on a future episode and unpack it with a few conversations about where we stand on that issue. We certainly have to do that. But I actually thought we had done that in this podcast, have we not? But it is it is such an important topic that yeah. we should do it again. Let's ask Paul. Have we done it, Paul? Um, I don't think we're going to quite ever finish with doing it because it's a huge issue. Um, somebody, you know, made an inappropriate joke. What was it that, that, you know, you can, you can buy things made by elderly people and it offsets that that was made by children. Um, it's a silly (laughs) idea, but the point I'm trying to make is that, uh, there are deeply complex philosophical issues here about how we conduct ourselves rightly and properly. Um, but clearly, um, it's going to be a growing issue, uh, excuse the pun, as nature-based solutions become an ever more significant part of offsetting the emissions that we can't avoid between now and 2050 when hopefully our renewably powered electric airplanes solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, and you're right, we have to, we can't shirk away from it and just like, there's been a part of the climate movement, I think in particular, that sort of said, it's just bad, we just don't do it at all. And I think we've agreed we need to engage in this and get it right, right, because of the situation we've come to. But we're, we're now cracking the lid on a whole broad issue, which maybe we won't go into, but just letting you know, listeners, because I'm sure there's people who had that thought, we see this and we understand it and we will dig into this on a future episode. Mm. Um, okay, f- should we pivot to our interview? We have a very exciting guest today. In fact, there are two additional voices on the podcast, one who is an old friend of ours, and, uh, and, and one uh, that will be new. So starting with the new voice, uh, this week we have Kim Stanley Robinson on the podcast. Now, Kim Stanley Robinson, or Stan, or Stanley as he likes to be known, is one of the best known US science fiction writers working today with over 20 published titles. He came up with the Mars trilogy uh, in 1995, and he came to see climate as a kind of determining unavoidable future and it kind of became a point of address in many of his subsequent novels his latest novel is called the ministry for the future and in it the paris agreement was a central theme around which the novel is organized as a source of optimism in the struggle that humanity faces to deal with unmitigated climate change it is a brilliant book we've all read it and we were all blown away by it. i think it's fair to say friends uh reading this book in preparation for this interview now, so would you say you have a lot of respect for Kim Stanley Robinson, Tom? I would, absolutely, yeah. So you would, you know, sit, you know, through the whole interview and not leave a great artist during an interview, just checking that one. Busted. Oh my gosh, well, here we go. <laughs> Point well Busted made. Busted Tom Ribbon Listeners, Carnet. I had to leave in the middle of this interview, which was very embarrassing that I had to leave. I can't remember. It was very important where I had to go to. The and and, and well. I would just let the listener know that it was almost at the time when the, pod, when the interview was supposed to end. Of course, my co-hosts uh, were so interesting that they kept talking with Stan for another half an hour or something. Uh, so I was very sad. To be honest, I'm just making fun, Tom, and I know that it was breaking your heart to break off, but it was just a bit of a surprise. You're because, very sweet. You know, Kim Stanley Robertson is a kind of super person uh, he is. floating above us doing the most amazing stuff. But uh, no, anyway. Now, the other voice you're going to hear is Nigel Topping. Uh, those who uh, attentive listeners will, of course, remember Nigel, close friend of ours, high-level 
champion for climate action for the COP26 process from the UK government and the UN. And Nigel, uh, we've known for many years, and he has been a fan of science fiction and a fan of Kim Stanley Robinson since he was a boy. So he joins us as a fourth interviewer. So I hope you enjoy this. And uh, we'll be back afterwards for a bit more conversation. Stan, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. And thank you for your very latest book, Mm. um, The Ministry for the Future. I have to say, Stan, I have seldom been through such a roller coaster of emotions. You had me (laughs) crying uh, already on page one, and I didn't stop until I don't know how many pages later. And then you had me jumping for glee. I mean, all of this in, uh, in, in one book. And I actually have to tell you, I listened to it on Audible. So I was uh, out in my garden doing things and the neighbors thought I was completely crazy because one time I was just bawling and the other time I was jumping up and down. And of course they couldn't hear anything because I had my little AirPods on. So um, thank you. Thank you Mm, for an absolutely brilliant, brilliant uh, work, work of art, I would say. And um, we all have a thousand questions that we want to ask you. But um, my first question is, You chose to start the book with a very powerfully written, compelling description of absolute torture, the pain that you describe in that Indian heat wave is just, it is just heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching. And I'm wondering, why did you choose that? Why, given the fact that this is science fiction or speculative fiction, as Nigel likes to think about it, what what is the purpose of starting us with such a dramatic and painful and compelling, because it's very well put out there, um, description of a future that we might sleepwalk ourselves into? Well, um, um, thank you for that, first of all, and thank you for having me and for your work. Um, I am a science fiction writer. I'm very um, uh, proud of that appellation and that genre. And so my whole career, I've been trying to think out um, trajectories forward from the moments that we're in to something interesting in the future and very often something positive, some Uh, You might call it best case scenario, sometimes the utopian tradition. Uh, And that's been my work all along. And and climate change became kind of an over-determining, unavoidable future that if you were going to write any kind of realistic science fiction, it had to be taken into account. That happened for me about 25 years ago, somewhere between finishing the Mars Trilogy or working on the Mars Trilogy in the early 90s and then going to Antarctica in 1995 and talking to the scientists in Antarctica. So uh, recently I've been running into, and I mean in the last 10 years or so, uh, it, it may be in the environmental humanities, maybe amongst um, political scientists, economists, never climate scientists, but people who are the commentariat, you might say, and in the larger discursive battle of what we were to do, they would say, well, adaptation, humans always adapt. Um, We have um, shot past the point where we can really hold the temperature down on earth. And so instead of all this fuss and expense and bother, we just have to adapt. 
to the higher temperatures, whatever they may be. 3C global average rise, 4C, 5C, we'll just adapt, we're adaptable creatures. And then I ran into this wet bulb 35 notion brought up by climate scientists that in fact, yep. uh, heat, heat and humidity in combination is a fatal at a very close to uh, temperatures that we're already reaching and we'll soon reach them more, such that the adaptationists, very often economists or um, philosophy majors, very often academics, were uh, proposing that we do something essentially impossible. So that first chapter was an attempt to uh, a kind of slap in the face or a punch on the nose to say, mm. Um, mm. We, we can't just adapt. No, if, if things get hot enough, you will need a, a power grid, a working power grid to live and other than that, you will simply die of um, hyperthermia. So um, that combined with the Paris Agreement as being, for me, a perpetual shock and a delightful surprise that the Paris Agreement even exists. If I, I say to people, <laughs> if I had written it in the year 2000 as a science fiction scenario, like when I was doing my Green Earth uh, Washington DC trilogy, people would have just uh, laughed. I, I swear they would have said, well, Stan Robinson, what a utopian, you know, it was so nice to be optimistic by that, but that will never happen. And then it did happen. And, <laughs> and that's a, did. yeah. And that's a sign of seriousness on that part of the world technocracy and the world diplomatic core in combination. In other words, the, the, uh, what you might call government listening to science and, and actually responding. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I was already a huge fan of the Paris Agreement and it seemed to me that this was the way I could, could um, uh, organize a global story covering about 30 years. I mean, there's a, a novelist's technical problem of how do you uh, organize a story that is that big and various. Mm. And the focal mm. point of the Paris Agreement was very obvious to me. And then I have to say, one of those lucky coincidences, I was at a conference back when there were such things <laughs> before the pandemic. It was maybe 2017, 2018. In San Francisco, uh, Jason Moore and his uh, eco-Marxist group, uh, he's a very great uh, uh, group of theorists trying to uh, think their way through what you might call a, uh, ecological leftism that combines the, the politics, the history, and the ecology, uh, science and politics in a good way. And at that, at that conference, I ran into a man named Tom uh, Athanasio, um, and Tom had worked on the Paris Agreement and he had um, talked to me intensely about it at the conference, cheerfully, but intensely to make sure that I got certain things right. I sent him the, <laughs> I sent him the manuscript of the book. And at that point he got back to me with a very useful um, critique of uh, suggestions and, and telling me, be sure that you read the Paris Agreement, be sure that you understand climate equity, and be sure that you understand that mm. it was arg argued over word by word and phrase by phrase. Yes, yes, uh, comma by comma. <laughs> yes, and so, well, I'm a writer, and this was a beautiful um, observation and, and you might say suggestion by Tom, because then I began to uh, pour into my novel uh, a much more, uh, a level of detail that I wouldn't have understood was important if I hadn't run into it. Now, I have to say, this happens to me all the time. At the back of all my novels, you'll see a list of people who've helped me. And so I am 
like my novels know more than I do because I'm just the telephone, the like the telephone operator in a 1940s movie. I plug in the knobs, <laughs> people speak. I pull it out, I plug in a novel knob, people speak. They speak through characters, but what those characters saying, I have learned from other people. And um, yeah. that's one of my uh, methods that I think gives my novels an extra uh, effect of the real because they are set in the future. They are um, speculations, they're thought experiments, they're fantasies. And yet I want them as novels to have the effect of the real so that when you're reading them or when you're listening mm -hmm. to them in the audiobook, you're thinking, yeah, that you, fall, you, you have that willing suspension of disbelief where you're thinking, yeah, this is really happening or it could really happen this way. I totally believe this. Well, that's a, a literary effect that has to be worked up. Mm. Well, beautifully worked out because, as you say, you you obviously have learned from many people. You delve into so many different uh, professions: there, economics, finance, geoengineering, human psychology, climate justice, physics. I mean, on and on and on and on. Right? There's there's uh, barely a topic that you do not go into. Um, but you do not limit yourself to where we are today. You take it, you know, one step into or two steps extended. Uh, into your imagination, your very well-researched uh, imagination. And that is, honestly, Stan, that what is what is unnerving about this book, that you think that you're there and this is really happening, but then wait a minute, you sort of, you, 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 it's a double taking, you go, wait a minute, is this real or is this real, is Stan's imagination taking me someplace? And that space between reality and your extension, your imagination, is a very fertile space in which readers or listeners can actually reach very different conclusions to where we were before we read the book. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, and what you say reminds me of an image that I've been using lately to describe how science fiction in general works. You remember those glasses you used to put on at 3D movies? I don't know if that's a genre that will survive, but you remember that effectively these 3D glasses work by way of the two lenses showing you slightly different things. Science fiction is like those glasses in this sense. On the one hand, through one lens, you really are trying to predict a plausible future. You're trying to do prophecy and saying this could happen. Through the other lens, mm -hmm. you're making a metaphor for the way things feel right now. It's entirely yeah. symbolic and metaphorical. I feel like a robot or time is speeding up or we're all stuck inside a giant spaceship. These science fiction images are metaphors for the feel of our current moment. Now, when you double up, when you look through both lenses by reading a science fiction text, because I'm basically a, uh, a print person, a novelist, well, what happens is what you were describing, a kind of a false three-dimensional pop, which is history itself. But history cast into a trajectory into the future. So you see that past history is leading through our moment and it's going to lead into this particular fictionalized future, mm -hmm. you believe it while you're mm -hmm. reading, and it seems tangible, seems inevitable yes. even. Although it, in, mm. in fact, no one ever gets it right. There is no science fiction novel that predicts what really is going to happen because it's too multivariant, too unpredictable in a most literal sense. So it's a, mm. it's a, it's a fictional affect state 
Um, but very powerful, as you say, if it's done right, right. and you're yeah. suddenly you're thinking, my God, I'm a historical actor and we are in a civilization that's in, you know, another crux in history. And so mm -hmm. we need to do X in order to get to Y and we need to avoid Z, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the the use value as a tool of human thought that, that science fiction, ex you know, as an art form, as a literary genre, that's what science fiction is up to. I've consumed it all through my youth, Sen, and, but thank you so much for this extraordinary book and, and you, all your work. But I mean, you, it's funny you called yourself a telephone operator and uh, we, we spoke to Jane Fonda and she spoke about how the artist can be a repeater. I mean, in her case, it's really kind of using her fame and position. But when I was reading the book, you had like this geoengineering and I was kind of like, I've been 20 years in climate change. And I'm like, yes, they're going to do that. They're going to put the aerosols up there. And then I've been totally mm. in love with cooperatives for, for since, since, well, for 20, 32 years, I've been obsessed with cooperatives. And then personal digital identities is something I've toyed with. But I realized you didn't write the novel just for me. What you've managed to do somehow. No, really? Are weird. you sure about that? <laughs> well, I was sure? wondering at times. I was like, I was thinking he's watching me, right? But no, but seriously, <laughs> Seriously, you, you've, you've managed to connect with, you managed to find a way to connect with, I guess, literally millions of people to, to bring together those visions of the future that kind of interconnect. And I was wondering what you thought was the role of, of fictional drama or science fiction in terms of uniting understanding and creating a narrative of possibility. Because a lot of what we want to do with the podcast and why it's such a privilege to speak to you is we do want to build a community to unify a whole bunch of people across the world in all kinds of different positions who recognize they have a shared purpose. Um, well, I'm thinking that this is sort of what the novel is for, has been for all along is to create a shared sense that we're in the same uh, social space and the same historical process. And that um, the novel can be made smaller by focusing only on uh, a single uh, tiny group of subjectivities, the individual consciousness um, and their fate as a domestic person, their affairs, their their life, a kind of um, a pocket biography or even a, a few years in time and that's a perfectly valid use of the novel but that it has a larger uh, potential that comes out of its beginnings in the well in the 18th century but in particular the 19th century with writers like Balzac or George Eliot or Dickens that um, people go to it to get a sense of the totality the social totality and where where science fiction brings in its extra charge uh, um, and something new to the game is not just the future, although that's important too, but also the planet. So you, you see mm -hmm. science fiction very often, you arrive at a new planet and it's entirely an ice ball or it's entirely a jungle. There be monsters and the planetary romance is a powerful form. But uh, it, what it does is it gives you the habit of thinking that the planet is also a character in your narrative that can have an impact mm. on the smaller narratives of the individual. So not only do you have your love story of your your fellow traveler on this in, in this world, but also you have the world as an impact that might uh, help or hinder the smaller dramas of the individual consciousness. So, okay, um, right now, literary fiction very much wrapped up in the kind of modernist or bourgeois project of um, the middle class Westerners in the developed world and their, the problems of their of their lives uh, in a kind of a fossil fuel cocoon or bubble that protects them from 
planetary impacts. I mean, usually in the ordinary literary fiction, you aren't worried about starvation or pandemics or a storm that might destroy your whole um, existence, your, your infrastructure of your existence. Well, that's off the table as a topic. But mm -hmm. in science fiction, it was always there. And now with climate change, what we're realizing, and this is why I have made this slogan up, that we are now all living in a science fiction novel that we are co-authoring together. And that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. We are yeah. all living in a science fiction novel we are co-authoring together. How's it going to yeah. end up? Well, what, I, what somebody just recently pointed out to me that is absolutely undeniable is that it isn't just one novel. It is um, that we are overlapping uh, multiple science fiction novels that are in competition for how it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. And and yeah. so we're in a, we're in a mess that that history as as a, a Gordian knot or as a tangled mess uh, is an image that you can't quite avoid. But uh, it does help to think that it's a science fiction thing because technology and the biosphere of this planet are both crucial actors in what can happen for human mm. civilization. That we are not Promethean gods that can do exactly what we want and we can't also rescue ourselves from certain uh, disastrous courses that we, we are sort of on a trajectory for right now uh, because of fossil fuels and habitat loss and all the things that you people are already working on. Well, that could lead to a very dark place where human powers are simply overwhelmed and incapable of coming back to the planet that we knew. So, um, you know, the stakes are high and, and it's, um, it's an interesting project to try to write novels. And, and I guess what I'd finish for this strand saying is that I, it's becoming obvious to me that Ministry for the Future is a, essentially a novel that people wanted without knowing it, that there aren't <laughs> many novels <laughs> like it. And it so nicely it, put. It fills a need in the yeah. uh, cultural yes. imaginary. Yes. Uh, there's an ecological niche there, a big one. Like, how can we get out of this alive and give a decent world to our children? And then you look to culture to find the answers. And even though there are um, uh, answers everywhere at the in, in level of individual policies, there's not one narrative that puts them together into a coherent future history. So that's a somewhat empty ecological niche and the ministry for the future you know i mean I, I did my best it's a novel a novel is a long narrative with a problem is a famous definition usually many problems so i i make no great claims for it except that it's filling a need that that there was a yeah. bit of an absence before mm. maybe now i could pick up from that because um uh, first of all i've been a fan for a long time since i came across the mars trilogy a long long time ago sort of devoured everything and i've become really intrigued by this idea of future histories as you as you call them and their ability to sort of shock kind of as you described it to shock us into thinking differently about what might be possible and um so much so that actually might i've made ministry for the future mandatory reading for my team so because in a way we think we're trying to build something like it so it's, an, it's a good yeah. and i love yeah. this idea of life book, imitating art yeah. a book that people yeah. wanted and they didn't know and you, you talk a lot about that you know i think you talk about this raymond williams idea of the structure of feeling and you yeah. What, tell us, I'm thinking that we've got wait, 10 wait, wait, months. Wait, wait, Nigel, are you doing, your team, are you doing this with or without drones? Without, without drugs. <laughs> drones. Yeah, drones, uh, drones. drones. Well, I think the darkest, I mean, you know, Kim's set, it's a bit more in the future. We've got to build up to the drones, right? Um, <laughs> but, but I think, the, I'm just intrigued by this idea of, um, what, what is it that makes a, a sort of shift in the, in the structure of feeling and the way that, 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 that. You know, one way is 
a, a shocking event, like a wet bulb event. But if, how can we, you know, how might we, with 10 months to go to the next important COP, the, the, which is really the five-year anniversary, the first real test of the Paris Agreement, ah. what, what might be the kind of use of the imagination in the next 10 months which could shift the structure of feeling, which could create a space which people didn't know they wanted that is not a novel, but which is a policy change or a new collaboration or a new movement? Yeah, uh, good question. And I'm, uh, uh, my mind is spinning with possibilities of, uh, as you put it, a new structure of feeling. I find this a very useful concept from Raymond Williams, British literary critic, that, okay, we're human beings, we're social primates, we're animals, and we have an emotional life that predates humanity, uh, hope and fear and all the rest of the emotions. And these are basic and biological, but then we're cultural and linguistic. And these basic physical, physically based, hormonal and uh, ad adrenaline, fight or flight, blah, blah. These are um, placed into linguistic categories and hierarchies, some more important than others in individual cultures. So they're historical and they're cultural, these structures of feeling. So that if you feel a burst of anger, you can turn that into a political self-righteousness or you can turn that into some kind of a uh, uh, revengeful uh, tit-for-tat culture. It gets... You see what I'm saying, and I feel that we are on the brink of a new global structure of feeling that has to do with the um, a tipping point in people's awareness that climate change is real, that it's hitting us, that we have to cope with it, something needs to be done, and also something can be done. And that's important. Uh, and indeed, I did a program with uh, the climate scientist, Michael E. Mann, who has written a new book called The New Climate Wars, where he identifies yeah. a slippage on the right going from denying that climate change is happening to admitting it, but saying there's nothing we can do about it, a kind of doomism. And you can easily be on the political left or the political right, and you can definitely be a young person and you see the powerful political forces of our time and say, A, people don't get along and we're too stupid to cope, and B, the physical processes are too far advanced for us to stop them, and so C, therefore, we are doomed. Mm. And then D, there's no reason to do anything. You might yeah. as well not act anymore. So uh, man calls this the new defeatism, uh, a new turn of the screw for those who are opposed to uh, fighting hard to um, deal with climate change. So that's part of the new structure of feeling is, is doomism, but then you have to ha uh, counter that, I suppose, with a new sense of hope. Everybody's aware of it. The changes uh, necessary uh, and the young, it's very important to emphasize this to young people, do not involve renunciation, putting on a hair shirt, acting like a saint, and having a worse standard of living than the generation that came right before you. That's by no means inevitable. And what baby boomers can point out is a lot of their life was a rat on a wheel chasing crap by performing crap. And that you strip away the fossil fuel cocoon from that and you are more alive, more stylish, more exposed to the real world and the biosphere. And that you can actually concoct, and this is very important to the structure of feeling, the utopian strand, that out of necessity and out of the opportunities of 
of uh, technology and solidarity together, you can concoct a new uh, structural feeling and a new political economy on which, of course, it's based in kind of base superstructure way. Williams would insist on that, and I think he's right. A new political economy that can cope with this issue that we can get mm -hmm. to a best-case scenario future. And so mm. um, um, Michael Mann sees us as being um, on the cusp of a new kind of one planet global sensibility, having the Biden administration coming into power for us right now, it's in three days or something like that, uh, maybe two days. Two um, days. Yeah, We're this counting. is a, yes, this, this is will a be, This will be broadcast after he's in, so President Biden. I've been listening to climate scientist groups um, talking to each other and I, I'm a kind of a um, honorary court jester figure in in many of these scenarios, in these in many of these uh, communities, and there's they're, they're saying that Biden's appointments have exceeded all of their expectations. That maybe Michael Mann is right. Maybe we're on the cusp of a of a tip into a new structure of feeling where climate change is acknowledged as the big global problem of our time. And also it is understood that solutions are there if we develop a new political economy. Hmm. So I'd say that's what's going on. And it's very exciting. As to what to do for it to collect, well, I'm noticing lots of groups think of themselves as being a ministry for the future already. And so they've yeah. contacted me like you. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it's good. Yeah. Um, and and uh, in general, there's a even if there aren't specific alliances, there is a general awareness that yeah. it's a broad front, mm -hmm. and a lot of people are doing things. So um, unfortunately, I have to leave in just a minute. I really apologize for that, but I just wanted to jump in uh, with a quick question. What you just said uh, really resonated with me, and that that sort of requirement for the sense that something needs to be done. And it can be done, right? And that there's an opportunity for us to face this with a degree of, you know, an, a positive outcome can be there. I remember early in my career, someone explaining that people don't get inspired by something that's really needy. They get inspired by something that's powerful and can lead to a positive outcome. And I think there's a lot in that narrative. Um, what we talk about there, we call it stubborn optimism. And we credit the creation of the Paris Agreement with this realization that actually things don't necessarily have to be going very well for you to make a decision that you are going to dig deep and do everything you can at that moment to create a positive outcome in that future. And that changes everything, right? Because then you can precipitate a momentum. It becomes exciting for people to get on board with that. That generates more momentum. And, and, and quite seriously, we would credit the turnaround from impossible to unstoppable on the journey to the Paris Agreement the, the seed of that was an attitude change, right? That then manifested in this wave that crashed over us and solved many of these intractable problems that seemed impossible to overcome in a better way than we could have managed. So that sense of possibility, I suppose what I'd, what I'd love to hear, and you've answered some of this already, is just to unpack, how do we kind of help people grasp that narrative and grasp the reality of this moment? We're in the most consequential decade in human history. And we can choose to face it with that kind of stubborn, determined optimism and be part of that change, or we can just decide it's all too difficult and then we know where the future's going. So what sorts of narratives do you think can get people inspired and excited to be that person who shows up with that attitude that can change the future? Um, well, it's a good question and I think we're all grappling with it. And I like this phrase, stubborn optimism, because it counters um, the, the Zizek phrase, cruel optimism. Uh, and I'm thinking about social media culture and youth culture, that the hopelessness comes from the um, lock 
that neoliberal capitalism seems to have on the world order and our lives. And that lock is, uh, has a very simple rubric. Nothing matters but profit. And everything is devoted to the highest rate of return. And human lives and the biosphere are sacrificed to the highest rate of return. It creates cynicism. It creates um, hopelessness and a kind of fashionable pessimism. And one game I see young people playing and the social media playing is, well, I can be more cynical than you. I'm so cynical that I'm a nihilist. And this is uh, an easy uh, way out of taking on harder uh, subject positions. And it's easy to defend because it looks like the Paris Agreement is a weak read in a world of neoliberal capitalism where nothing matters but the highest rate of return. And mm -hmm. really the 1% have, uh, have us in a headlock that we can't get out of. So how does hope and stubborn optimism counter that? One thing would be to insist on the possibility of a stepwise non-magical move out of neoliberal capitalism that one can imagine happening without everything changing and without 10 years of destructive worldwide civil war as opposed to 10 years of constructive work. That political economy and proposal, a stepwise proposal that is um, possible, rational, believable, and is out there for young people to work on, somewhat like Bernie Sanders' campaign, uh, uh, with which it has some similarities, um, to, in other words, offer the policies that are based in the present and yet lead to a post-capitalist future. For me, imagining a, a believable post-capitalism and a transition to post-capitalism has been the order of the day for more than 20 years. And I think that's an uncompleted project that most economists are just analysts of capitalism. That's what economics is. That most people who do political ec economy are um, marginalized in political science departments and are the, yeah. the more th theoretical and you might say um, impractical of the diplomacy crowd. And that's why the Paris Agreement is so important, by the way. I mean, I've been calling it a major event in world history that if humanity survives and um, 3,000 years from now, they're writing a history that is a world history, like a big history, like is a thing in history now. Well, the Paris Agreement will get a page or a chapter as being a major turning point. And what I notice is that the cynicism is to say, oh, well, it's just the UN or, oh, it isn't strong enough or, oh, people aren't. Uh, in other words, the, the, the tendency to put out a tweet that is negative, cynical, knowing, and therefore wise has to be countered by, but wait, and then you have to go into the tedious work of providing the facts of showing the good side of saying, well, if it's only, if it's only half of what we need, then maybe the first half is more important than the second half or harder to achieve than the second half, or maybe we need to make it better. But where else are you going to platform that discussion, but in the Paris Agreement? Yeah. And then in terms of the political economy project, I've been saying um, anti-austerity, so anti-neoliberalism, um, Keynesianism, a return to Keynesianism, and that comes into uh, carbon coin in my book and to the modern monetary theory, which kind of a neo-Keynesian, and then maybe a kind of um, uh, social democracy as in the Scandinavian countries, as a, a government uh, directing the work of society and rewarding and giving people a social safety net. If young people had that social safety net, they would be much more cheerful and optimistic than they are. Yep. Uh, and then lastly, maybe, 
democratic socialism, or maybe the reason I call it post-capitalism is I think it will be an improvisation like they all have been. And putting one name on it is maybe a distortion. And I'm a member of Democratic Socialists of America, and I love these mostly young people for their um, emphasis on the importance of the collective and solidarity and public over private. So and I'm perfectly willing as an American leftist to support all these causes. But what I think is you need to propose, and people haven't done it yet, this is where policy uh, groups, think tanks, need to have like a set of policies that are obvious, tax structures actually called out. And I've been associated with academic groups and they just get lost in the weeds. They get lost in academic, okay, we'll talk about this for five more years and get some more grant money and then we'll talk another five years and then the decade is up. But there has to be the kind of think tanks that are more practical um, and policy advice groups like yours that just say, look, this is what can be done and this is what will solve the problem uh, using the scaffolding of the Paris Agreement to orchestrate it all. Yeah, Stan, what, um, one of the things that intrigues me in this conversation about, I mean, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't perhaps call it a post-capital, I'd say, you know, uh, because part of, part of what I'm always trying to do is work with incumbent power as a tool to changing the system. Yeah. So, which is which, and there's a there's a risk, right, of being seduced and being and, and being trapped there. But one thing one thing we know is that the the voice of leading businesses who are committing to transform to zero carbon across their full value chain is this is really powerful, right? It changes, it opens up political space. It makes it easier for bolder politics because politicians won't move way faster than markets will allow them to. They need some. They need. They both need sort of citizen empowerment so the so the kind of grassroots the, the school strikers are, are giving them that but then the, but then businesses and investors saying they're going so how how, how do you think about work because because you you know you in, in the mars trilogy you have some very interesting kind of big corporations and um and you, and you imagine different different roles so how do you think about the role of incumbent power which i don't i don't mean incumbent power as in those who are desperately hanging on to existing structures but those who are Really, really grappling with the complexity and trying to trying to play a kind of honest broker role and know understand the science, know there's got to be transformation, are making these commitments, are investing in the future, but are also part of a structure of feeling and a structure of policy and a structure of consumerism, which they can't single-handedly break out of. So how do you think about the way to engage with them as actors who can who can be part of the shift? Because that seems to be one of the when we get that right, we can accelerate. I I'm afraid that my own personal predilections are not useful. I'd like to scare them. Right. Um, and and I, the, in the Ministry for the Future, I have a young uh, U.S. Navy veteran talking about her experience in the U.S. Navy and talking about wage parity, which yeah. is one is yeah. a co- it's a cooperative principle. Young people are cynical and beaten down and defeatist now because the wage disparity and also the wealth disparity in capitalism. And I wanna say that capitalism is a system of power relations. It's not an economic system, it's a power system in which the few exploit and over-determine the lives of the many who often are in the precariat and suffering where a small minority of people are garnering the huge majority of the profits made by the system. So capital exists, the the useful product of of human labor. Technology exists and it needs to be developed and innovated and all these things. Capital bulks of money that get paid out 
to um, um, pay people for their livelihood, to put their work and their time into these things. All that exists, but the system of power in which 1% control 80% of human wealth and then um, the lower 10% controls 90% of human wealth and the, the poorest half of the people on this planet have effectively nothing, that's capitalism. And so I talk of post-capitalism. I speak of Eisenhower uh, and the Republican Congress of 1953 that had a tax structure so that once you made more than $400,000 a year as an individual, then 90% of that above that was taxed, 91%. This uh, progressive taxation and corporate taxes that are progressive also so that the bigger the corporation, the bigger the tax, the lawyers would quickly advise you to break those big corporations into smaller corporations in order to pay less tax. In other words, a horizontalization of economic power and of adequacy for all. I'm seeing uh, the outlines of a political economy that would be more horizontalized, that more humans would be on board with, that would be more just and more sustainable at the same time, because there's lots of biosphere work to be done. Yeah. So it's, it's the payment structure. It's shifting from profit to people. And all these slogans, I think, are right. It's what's interesting is to get to the particulars and also win the discursive battle at the level of a working majority, and also, as you said, getting the ownership class on board with that. Like, it'll be better for their kids too. Yeah, great. Over to you, Christiana. Well, you know, that that shift um, from uh, boundless consumption to adequacy is, um, as as you put forward in the book with your 50 million limit on, uh, on, on wealth, um, is, is definitely a mental and a practical shift. Now, Stan, um, we, we could go on forever talking to you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we usually ask our guests a closing question, and I, I think we can all um, guess where you're going to come out on this, but we still have to ask you. So the name of our podcast is Outrage and Optimism because we feel that both are necessary forces in the change that we must affect. But we realize that there is a spectrum between outrage and optimism and that people place themselves at different points in that spectrum. And so the question to you is, where on that spectrum do you place yourself in at the very beginning of 2021? Well, it's funny that you ask because for years I've been defining myself as an angry optimist or that optimism needs to be used as a club to uh, beat your opponents and convince people that you're right in the discursive battle. So I like your name. Um, and, um, and to me, the, you know, it's one of those dialectical uh, dualisms where both of them are necessary and important so that you don't get the cruel optimism that Zizek was critiquing and just say, oh, things are going to be all right, you know, inevitably. That's definitely not true. We're going to have to fight for mm, it. Correct. So, um, I have a feeling of um, fear and urgency. Um, uh, Michael Mann talks a lot about urgency, mm -hmm. that it's the time is now and we need to push hard. And um, the, the optimism part is a moral imperative. That in other words, to be pessimistic, it's too late for pessimism is yeah. another mm. slogan. It, it, one has to, uh, and also ignore one's personal feelings as a um, as a prosperous person in the developed world. Um, your feelings have 
to be bracketed as irrelevant. The project is necessary for the children and the, dis and the people to come, the generations to come. It's just work that has to be done to get that working majority a, a political battle, wicked and ugly and, and often boring and tedious and stupid uh, and yet necessary. So um, I guess I would, I would enjam those two, the two uh, parts of your structure of feeling uh, and make it just one thing, that there is mm -hmm. a, a sense of urgent, positive work that is, whether you're feeling uh, hopeless and nihilistic or filled with optimism for the incredible possible possibilities of a good future, big deal, you still got to do the, the grinding work. <laughs> and so, so that's where we are. That's how I would put it. Well, Nice summary. We still have to do the grinding work. Well, we've been definitely keeping our nose onto that grind. Um, and we welcome that uh, that you are uh, helping uh, with that. And we look forward to welcoming you at COP26. Mm. Stan, thank you so much. Thank you for, for 20 novels. Thank you for this one in particular that is just uncomfortable enough to move us toward uh, doing more work. Thanks very, very much. Well, thank you all for having me and thank you for your work. And um, I'm putting it on my radar. If we can um, meet in a physically distance and safe Glaswegian <laughs> setting. Glaswegian, hey, come to, come to Glasgow for the COP, it'll be great. Yeah. Come, Stan, you're welcome. I would love it. So, right, we're working right. on it, we're working on it right away. Thanks, Stan. Yeah. Great to see you. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Thank you. everyone. Bye-bye. So great to sit and chat with Stan about his books. How amazing to have that opportunity after having read Ministry for the Future. Um, and I, of course, enjoyed the bit that I missed, uh, which I've now listened to. <laughs> um, what did you guys leave that conversation with? You know, several things. I was... Um, uh, understandably for myself, I was so impressed about how he understands the climate negotiation process. Yeah. It's not an easy process to understand. And he definitely put his time into understanding that hmm. and was, um, was very, it went into very many details about it, proving that he did. But I was equally impressed with the incredible diversity of topics that he has really researched yeah. mm. and goes into incredible detail. I actually wondered, how does he do that? Does he research a topic and then write a whole chapter on it and then, you know, drop them in here and there? How do, does he have a whole team of people doing research for him? How does he cover so much ground in one book? And make it um, coherent. It's yeah. not like he has all of these topics and they're disjointed. They, they're standalone. To a certain extent, each of them are standalones um, in their detail and their treatment, but they also hang together so beautifully. I'm so impressed. This is my first book of his, I will admit, uh, but I'm very enticed to do further reading of his. Yeah, no, I mean, Christiana, that's... Um... Beautifully put, and uh, you know, building on it, um, he was talking about the way uh, great writers uh, can give a sort of sense of the totality, the social totality. He said, you know, all those different components of society sort of brought together, so you can envisage them, and, th and then the extra part of science fiction is, is showing that uh, 
that there's even an actor in there that can be the planet. I loved when he said that he thought that this was a book the world needed without knowing it needed it. Yeah, um, that's such a beautiful it's, explanation. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Because it sort of it shows the humility that he doesn't say, I knew that there was this great thing and then I went off and constructed it, that kind of genius narrative. He kind of understands the book meeting the world and then what happened. And um yeah, it's I mean, it's it's that that power of the imagination to kind of like go through to to help you go through something and therefore understand it from a different perspective is something that just helps us so much as we try and put our arms around such a complicated, long-term, all-enveloping topic. I think it's a it's a huge service that he's provided to humanity in writing that book. Yes, that's that's really what I what no, that is what really touches me so deeply. That um, he is such a deep believer in who we are or who we can be. Who can we grow up and stand up to be? we as uh as as the human race his faith in what we can do um his recognition that that there is this good in us and that we can touch it when it is absolutely critical that we do so it's mm. not you know it's not a book about the marvels of technology and technology is going to solve this or the marvels of financial instruments and pricing carbon or, you know, a carbon coin. It is about how we as humans actually go into our ingenuity and come up with a whole host of different tools to meet the climate challenge. And, and that faith in humanity, um, honestly, his, his love of humanity mm. is so touching to me. Yeah. Honestly, it's brilliant. This is the strongest book review I've ever heard, apart from The Future We Choose by Christiana and Tom, which is the best book in the world. This is clearly the second best book in the world. Buy it, read it, enjoy it. It'll do you a lot of good and give you a great picture of how we can get this done. It does. And he says in it, which is one of my favorite quotes, he says, the optimism part is a moral imperative, which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Now, as ever, we turn to music and it is fantastic this week. You are really going to enjoy this. Now, this week we have a musical piece for you from Toucan Toucan. It's called Konawulan. Um, Tukan Tukan is a duo comprised of Laurie, the singer-songwriter and a composer, and Etienne, the drummer, record producer and sound designer. Great French pop duo, think Daft Punk. This should be really good. <laughs> uh, so we will leave you with them. Uh, they will describe the song and why this is a song with a purpose. And we think you're going to love it. Thank you for joining us this week. This has been a great conversation. So fun to have Stan here. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Our inspiration comes from a traditional Malinke rhythm called Konawulen with djembe, dum dum, and metal percussions. We slowed down the tempo and it created a heavy atmosphere with a kind of tension. In this song, I talk about the not so unrealistic idea of the colonization of planets with no regard for nature use the resources of a planet and then throw it away for a new one. In our opinion, it's important that artists fit in with their time and even if in our case this is not our first goal, we want to discuss our daily life with our audience. Lately, we read Jan Urbina's book The Outlaw Ocean for a music and journalism project. We discovered there 
a new phase of the exploitation of man and nature and of mind by man. And it uh, revolts me to see how we contribute to this end. I also sometimes host migrants and their joy of living, their hope, makes me want to believe in our ability to change things. And we talk more and more about the problems. It can be depressing sometimes to bathe in this news. But it's by putting the problems on the table that we will find solutions. My neighbors have become my friends. Many of us want to go back to the simple things in life, starting with nature. I think we will get tired of pretending, pretending that everything is always fine. And I believe in solidarity, love, to give us the energy necessary to overcome everything.
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. You just heard Kano Woolen by Toucan Toucan. Probably one of the best band names I've heard in a while. Um, Toucan Toucan has a music video for the song. It's the perfect visual for like a sci-fi themed episode. Lots of galactic and interplanetary sci-fi imagery and honestly just the perfect excuse to listen to the song again. So Toucan Toucan links to their music website and more music videos in the show notes. And yes, the music video I link you to is approved by my one-year-old. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mantilla Herman, and our producer is Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet Karnak. Thank you to our guest this week, Kim Stanley Robinson. If you have not read The Ministry for the Future, you need to stop doing other things so that you can. Uh, Seriously, go listen to it on Audible, pick up a copy on your Kindle or a hard copy for your bookshelf in your Zoom background. Once you're done reading it, of course. Links to his website, book, and more in the show notes. But for real, it's a white book with blue lettering. It'll be a pleasant addition for your colleagues and families to see on Zoom, you know. And if you have blue eyes, it's probably going to accent them nicely. (laughs) So we've been reading more listener reviews and tweets and messages on the podcast from you, and we aren't going to stop anytime soon. You can find us on social media at Global Optimism for all your stubborn optimistic needs. Send us a message. And it helps us to an immeasurable end if you rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We read every single review, and sometimes we even read them on the podcast, so look out for that. It only takes a minute, and we would be so grateful if you filled it out. Thank you to everyone who has written us a review as well. Short credits this week. I think it's due to the fact that I just saw a spider on my microphone, and I want to get away from this thing as soon as possible. Okay, that is a wrap on episode 89. Wow. Next week, episode 90, another episode coming your way. So hit subscribe. And we'll see you then.